Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Canada's Foreign Affairs Minister, Melanie Jolie, is going to fly to Ukraine to meet with NATO officials concerning a threat of military action against Ukraine by Russia. So it's a major headline, and I, I'm not trying to avoid attestation, but I can't find, I cannot find wh- who originated this headline. So with due apologies to the headline writer, I'm not trying to not give you credit. I just can't find who you are. But the, the headline was, Fears of Ukraine Invasion Rise as Russia Talks Fail to Reach Breakthrough. And then there's this one. The Globe and Mail, Ottawa allows Chinese acquisition of Canada's neo-lithium to pass with no form, formal national security review. Hmm. Mr. Trudeau, you have something to say about that? Well, our guest argues that China uh, continues its manipulation of the narrative with Canada and pushing the untruth that China is indispensable as a trading partner to Canada. As well, our guest says, Russia's leader, Vladimir Putin, is engaged in pushing the West as far as he can without the most severe of consequences for Moscow. Is it Moscow or Moscow? What roles can and must Canada play in the West's engagement with Russia and China? That's my question. Dr. Christian Luprecht joins us, professor at Queen's University and Royal Military College. He's an Eisenhower Fellow at the NATO Defense College in Rome, Monk Senior Fellow in Security and Defense at the MacDonald Laurier Institute, And he's regularly called on as an expert witness at parliamentary committees. One of his books, the most recent, is Intelligence as Democratic Statecraft, and it's published by Oxford University Press. Dr. Luprecht, how are you? Good afternoon, Roy. Good to have you with us, because I'm very confused. I'm I'm becoming more confused as the minutes go on. But let's let's try to pull this all together, and let's start with this whole issue, and it's serious. Russia, Ukraine... NATO, um, and where this is headed. So we have the Foreign Affairs Minister, Melanie Jolie, flying to Ukraine to meet with leaders and NATO allies. The White House is warning Russia is creating a pretext, including an online campaign for an attack on Ukraine. How do you see it? Yes, so since 2014, Putin has laid the ideological foundations within Russian society for a conflict with Ukraine. And so Russian society is well prepared for this. And this is the narrative of creating, constructing this outside enemy, NATO, and sort of constructing this narrative of the original sin, uh, these five waves of NATO expansion. But what this, of course, is really about is whether the three republics, Belarus, uh, uh, Ukraine, and Georgia, former Soviet republics, will actually be sovereign states or whether they basically have to uh, uh, accept uh, uh, sovereign tutelage. Uh, by Moscow. And clearly what Putin is signaling is uh, that these three republics must remain under uh, Soviet tutelage, uh, Russian tutelage. And we can see sort of the efforts also in the various stands, including Kazakhstan, uh, the effort to expand that. I think Putin is sort of thinking about reconstructing an iron curtain um, between NATO member countries and Russia. So this is something that I tweeted the other day, and uh, and it just occurred to me as I was watching, and I I don't have the depth of knowledge you do, but I, I like observing international politics and the realities of major nations. And it just seems to me that Putin seems to be engaged in an attempt to reconstruct in some way the USSR. 
Well, that is his paradigm, right? I mean, he was deployed as an intelligence officer to Eastern Germany. He has called the demise of the Union, uh, the Soviet Union, um, as the greatest uh, tragedy in history. Um, and uh, I mean, this is somebody who lived through the chaos of the 1990s um, in uh, Russia under Yeltsin, and who was determined, in his words, to restore Russia to what he believes is uh, Russian glory. And you remember, this is somebody who has a big ego. He was very slighted when Obama referred to Russia as a regional power. And so what he's trying to demonstrate is that Russia is a power to be reckoned with. And this is, of course, one of the second order consequences. If Putin does invade Ukraine, especially eastern Ukraine, where many of, sort of the industrial heartland and resources lie, it will also make Russia stronger. And it will al allow Russia to remount this challenge of being a genuine global power that clearly uh, the West uh, and the U.S. has called into question. So let's look at us then. Here we are, Canada. We're a member of the G7. We're uh, uh, an influential nation, and we certainly like to believe that we are. Uh, the retired uh, Australian jet fighters notwithstanding. So what is Canada's role, and what is our capacity to meaningfully contribute to any defense of Ukraine against a Russian military foray into that country, if it were to happen? What, what, what can we do? Well, there are, I think, two dictums here. One is uh, Monty, so Field Marshal Montgomery, never march on Moscow. Um, and so I think this is something that NATO and uh, NATO allies in the U.S. have taken to heart, which is why they're saying they'll provide support, uh, but there's not going to be a, a NATO backing of uh, Ukrainian forces, in part because, to some extent, the Ukrainian forces have to live with their own um, ossified structures. They've been unwilling to reform much of their military structure. And if they had reformed their military structure, as the West has been trying to push them to for seven years, they would be in a much better position to repel a Russian attack and to mount uh, a much more painful um, uh, uh, defense uh, against the Russian attack, whether it's from the north, from the south, or from the East. Uh, the other is sort of that um, one of my colleagues like to say that uh, the Europeans like to fight their wars right down to the last Canadian. And so Canada has drawn hard lessons from the 20th century. Canada has a strategic interest in uh, harmony, prosperity at the territorial integrity of Europe. So anytime somebody endangers that territorial integrity and tries to rewrite the rules and rewrite the borders, it runs fundamentally counter to Canadian interests because it causes um, political and economic instability in Europe. And so Canada uh, will do sort of what it takes. And the Americans have already drawn the line in the sand here. They've said they're prepared to uh, provide lethal weapons to Ukraine. They're prefer prepared to start uh, a guerrilla insurgency uh, a la Afghanistan and the Soviet invasion in 1979-1980. And they're prepared to send more troops uh, to, in particular, to the Baltic republics and to Poland, which would be under immediate threat as sort of the next step for uh, a potential Russian invasion rather than fewer troops. And so that means, of course, since Canada is leading as the framework nation in Latvia for the enhanced forward presence, it means that at a minimum, Canada is going to would have to pony up more troops uh, and Canada might have to fall in line with the US and assist with perhaps lethal weapons or even uh, starting a guerrilla insurgency because continental European allies such as Germany um, have already signaled that they're not prepared to send lethal weapons uh, and that they're going to be continuing to count on the on the Normandy 
um, uh, dialogue, that is to say, France, Germany, um, uh, the US, Russia, Ukraine, um, to bring them together and to find a diplomatic solution. So um, a lot of burden would fall onto Canada uh, and the United Kingdom uh, to support uh, the US. Before I take a break, I have another question for you. And I just want to roll this one by you. How do our allies, if we're now looking at two camps, we have Russia, we have China, three camps, we have NATO, we have the West. How do our allies, our you know, foremost allies, the United States, the UK, France, Australia, how do they view us? Do they respect us or do they view us with a degree of suspicion, not really knowing what this government's all about or what we're all about anymore? I think Canada is in a higher place, right? It's uh, it has it's a relatively modestly resourced uh, country uh, for our size, and we've uh, especially very modestly resourced our defense, intelligence, and security capacity. I call this sort of a rather homeopathic approach, and we have a lot of demand. Uh, we have demand in terms of defending the North and the Arctic, and Russian activity and Chinese activity there. We of course have demand in the Asia Pacific theater, and there's significant demand in Europe. And so I think Canada's strategic interests are ultimately in defending its interests in the North and the Arctic and in Europe. And you can see this with Canadian deployments that run from the Baltic states through Romania, um, right down through every country around Syria, except for Syria itself and into uh, North Africa. And so uh, the challenge here is that we're very stretched thin in terms of resources and capability. And so the government uh, uh, is asking a lot of our Canadian armed forces especially also given the pandemic deployment. And it's not clear to me that there are sufficient resources to do domestic operations, continental defense, as well as the regional and international stability operations. And we live in a dangerous world. And I think in terms of shoring up our credibility, Canada always says in Washington, look, you know, it's uh, uh, it, it, deterrence is ultimately about capability, um, cash and commitments. So you yeah. need to bring things to the table and you need to be able to be willing to deploy uh, these capabilities. And I think in Washington, they're getting a little bit tired of Canada talking about we make commitments to NATO and we have capability. I think in Washington, there's considerable rumbling about Canada is going to need to invest cash in order to beef up both its capability and its capacity. So the, it can actually make real commitments um, in a much more dangerous and challenging world. No, we do. I mean, if, if we're modestly equipped, it's our own fault. If we run around buying uh, mothball jets from, from another country, that hardly puts us in the forefront of being reliable allies, does it? Well, and if you look at the delta between the original cost for the F-35 and whatever jet we're going to buy, there's a significant premium on a fighter jet that ultimately it looks like the Canadian government is going to end up buying anyways. Yeah. Uh, so I think we need to Get stop on with it. Uh, playing politics. Get on with it. So uh, our, our relationship with China, now this is very interesting. It's uh, it's a complicated relationship, and it just seems to me that uh, that China is operating it and running it and running us via the Chinese embassy in Ottawa. Where does intelligence fit into? Where does, um, you know, your, your book is Intelligence as Democratic Statecraft, Christian. Where does intelligence fit into the overall equation? The 21st century, given the capabilities that our adversaries have, intelligence is fundamentally our first line of defense because it gives us an insight into the intent and the capabilities that our adversaries have. And of course, currently, everybody's question 
Is Putin going to launch an attack? What type of attack? Where is he going to launch that attack? What are the political objectives associated with that? And those are the sort of elements where, for instance, intelligence can provide us significant insight and also help us to avoid misunderstandings and missignalings by our adversaries. So intelligence, ultimately, if we're going to try to avoid conflict and war, and we're going to try to preserve democratic norms, is more vital in the 21st century than it has ever been. Are we good at it? Uh, we have um, understood intelligence organizations have come and gone historically, usually at the time of war. And it's only after the Second World War that we really established permanent intelligence organizations, um, especially foreign intelligence organizations, in order to be able to understand what our adversaries are up to and to thwart their efforts here at home. And of course, Canada to this day does not have a foreign intelligence human collection service. And so Canada is certainly one of the countries that I think is lagging in its obligations both to Canadians and to preserving the international rules-based order and democratic norms and values when they are under considerable duress and threat in the 21st century by our adversaries. Intelligence as Democratic Statecraft is published by Oxford University Press, most recent book by my guest, Professor Christian Luprecht. All right, China. What about this relationship with Canada and China? It's a confusing reality. Uh, headline, uh, Globe and Mail, Ottawa allows Chinese acquisition of Canada's neolithium to pass with no formal national security review. We've had the the CanSino uh, vaccine mess. We have the uh, rather strange relationship our prime minister seems to have with the philosophies of the Xi regime. What about the China-Canada relationship? Yeah, so one of my concerns here, Roy, is the narrative that China has implanted in Canada and among Canadians. And we'll both have heard this narrative repeated that the trading relationship with China is Canada's second most important trading relationship. But of course, that ignores a couple of very important points that our most important trading relationship with the, with the US, 75% of our trade. Our trading relationship with China is less than 5%. If you put the European Union in there, then it is actually our third, uh, our third trading partner. And much of that is um, uh, agricultural goods. So they're not goods that add to our value chain in terms of research and development. Uh, the importance of agriculture notwithstanding. Uh, there's many policy and moral issues with regards to forced labor. Um, our trade deficit with China continues to grow because, of course, China doesn't grant us access. And so there's issues in two-way trade. And so I'm concerned that uh, we need to make sure we don't buy into Chinese soft power. The Chinese have the second largest diplomat the largest diplomatic service in the world, precisely because they try to push soft power and these types of narratives. And so we shouldn't give them more credit than they are due. They haven't taken the substantive action to deserve this. They don't have the objective influence that they claim to have. And so we need to make sure we don't give in because this is classic Shenzhou um, Chinese strategy, trying to win the war without firing a shot. Okay. And we need to make sure we explain to Canadians that China does not have the influence it claims okay. to have. So, um, so Mr. Trudeau has, um, as I said, a sometimes difficult to understand um, fanboy relationship with China. But, but China... Is also said to have interfered with our with our most recent election, and I'm sorry, we only have seconds here. Is that true? 
Um, it is absolutely true. There are two new reports, uh, both on disinformation as well as an article on policy options by uh, Benjamin Fung from uh, McGill. And I think the readership should be quite aware that these are not abstract issues, that foreign interference here in our political process in Canada is alive and well. We have the evidence from the last federal election. We have the warning to Canadian parliamentarians and we have the report on a UK uh, effort within the UK parliament by a Chinese operative actively to pay off UK members of parliament. Uh, this is a significant threat and we need to counter it. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.